episode of Meet Us in the Middle, I am talking with three amazing, smart individuals. Ross Duvall, the president and CEO of Heartland Forward, my boss, Marianne Feldman, who is a senior fellow with us at Heartland Forward, and she is also making a move from being at the University of North Carolina to start at Arizona State University this coming fall. And then last but not least, Daniel Getzel, and he is the entrepreneurial lead for the new program that the NSF, the National Science Foundation, just launched called the Regional Innovation Engines, or better known as the NSF Engines. Now, the red thread, as you're listening to this podcast, that these three individuals have a passion for innovation and entrepreneurship. This episode was recorded during the Heartland Summit, which is the flagship event held by Heartland Forward, inviting 350 individuals to Bentonville, Arkansas, from philanthropists to venture capitalists, uh, to leaders in all different realms of business, to have rich discussions about the Heartland. And it was at this event where we released a report that Marianne Feldman led with Heartland Forward. And the report is called Research to Renewal, Advancing University Tech Transfer. In the podcast, Marianne and Ross really do explain the importance of a university's ability to turn research and discovery into private industry, yielding an economic return. In addition to the discussion about the report, then Daniel shares details about this bold new NSF initiative and why it was created really with the idea to catalyze and foster innovation ecosystems across the U.S. And as you can imagine, at Heartland Forward, our fingers are crossed, the Heartland will receive a couple of these different engines to help with our economy. These engines are compelling to us as they have three core functions. One is use-inspired research and development. Second, translation of innovation results to society, much like the report on research to renewal, as well as workforce development to grow and sustain regional innovations. This conversation between these three is fun and informative, and we hope that you're going to enjoy it. We are so excited to have the three of you all with us today, Ross and Mary Ann and Daniel, for our Meet in the Middle podcast with a focus a bit on a lot of what we have been thinking about at the Heartland Summit, as that's what we're experiencing, with an emphasis on the report that we have released called Research to Renewal, Advancing University Tech Transfer, as well as Daniel coming in talking about the announcement that has recently been made by the NSF of the regional innovation engines that are going to be, is a new program that's gonna be available to communities, collaborative communities. But I wanna start off Ross with you and asking a question about the ability for universities to transfer their technology knowledge to their students. And of course, then their surrounding communities through commercialization is a topic that has obviously been an interest of yours. Uh, throughout your career, looking at the kind of work that you have done. Why, why is this so important? Well, it's really important because, in my opinion, this is at the forefront of America's competitiveness. So if you look at places around the country, metropolitans, you will find that the leading technology clusters all had some major research university that one was among the leaders in the world, but also had a very keen focus 
on commercializing their intellectual property and transferring it to the private sector. And in many cases, these technology clusters evolved out of the university research that was either absorbed into private industry or kind of pushed out of academia into the private sector in terms of a new startup. And I, I think it is America's key competitive source long-term because in, unless we're creating new knowledge, embedding it in our students, principally STEM students, but also business and other areas as well, and transferring that to the private sector, other countries are trying to surpass us such as China, and it really is our most enduring long-term advantage. While this has been something you focused on over your career, particularly since the last report that you touched, I believe was when you were at the Milken Institute in 2017 to today's report that came out just uh, this week, what sort of trends have you noticed across the board? Well, that first report done with Milken was uh, concept of commercialization was done with my co-author, Manoli Ratnatunga. And this report really not only updates that one, but adds a whole new series of metrics into the mix. I think a number of things. One, if you look at what's happened over the past five years, you will see that there are more universities that have a commitment to commercializing intellectual property seen as part of their mission. You're beginning to see some cultural changes take place. Uh, more universities, for example, um, provide credit for tenure based upon how successful you are in terms of creating intellectual property. Where so there's an incentive for faculty There is. There's okay. much more of an incentive. Before there was almost a disincentive because you were told by your dissertation, dissertation chair, your committee chair, that uh, it was publish or perish. And so we're now seeing more universities see commercialization as part of the decision-making process uh, towards whether or not you receive tenure. And academics are no different than anyone else they respond to incentives or to disincentives. Right, of course. Now, Mary Ann, I mean, we know that this is important, but not all universities are excelling at it. Now, how can universities see the value and recognize this importance? Oh, I think most universities, university presidents for sure, and most faculty realize the importance. And when I mentioned faculty really are engaged in this pursuit of knowledge and really want to see their ideas put into practice and affecting um, the sort of greater public good. Um, I think that's very important for a lot of faculty because if they wanted to make money, they wouldn't be faculty members. Uh, making money along the way is a, is a nice sort of um, sideline. But um, I believe there is a, an increasing commitment. And what we see is that most universities now do have tech transfer offices. And there's an interesting trend because these tech transfer offices are morphing and taking on more responsibility for regional economic development, for creating innovative entrepreneurial ecosystems in their communities and states. And so it's a really exciting time right now. I think um, with 
uh, pending legislation and new initiatives to build infrastructure and reshore American manufacturing, we're just really in a good place right now. So one of the first steps you would say to university that isn't doing so hot is they need to get a tech transfer office if they don't have one, <laughs> sounds like. You know, I think most of them have them. I would say um, one of the problems, and we identify this in the report, is that tech transfer is really an unfunded mandate. Uh, we are just now 40 years since the passage of the Bayh-Dole Act in 1980. And this is an important piece of legislation because it gave universities rights to own intellectual property. And what we've seen in this ensuing 40 years is a lot of experimentation with different mechanisms, with different ways of incentivizing faculty. And I think we've learned um, better ways of, of making this an easier activity for faculty to engage in, providing supports for faculty. And, um, and I just, you know, there's just um, a, a great deal of information out there that can assist universities. In coming up with our index, you know, we do rankings and rankings are just sort of a necessary evil, I think. But we tried to break down how well universities were doing on the individual components that we use in our index, which I hope is going to be a useful diagnostic and just sort of places, um, excuse me, um, just indicators where universities might try to improve their performance. Daniel, so I certainly want to bring you into this conversation because academia cannot do this alone. It takes innovation and entrepreneurship, and it's almost a flow in some cases back and forth between the two through collaboration and partnership. You announced through the National Science Foundation an incredible opportunity for collaborative regions to maximize opportunities through what you all are calling regional innovation engines. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. So we recently launched this new initiative at the National Science Foundation called the Regional Innovation Engines. And we are looking to make bold investments in regions across the country, especially regions that have not fully participated in the tech boom of the past decades, to help them build their innovation ecosystems, help them catalyze the things that they've always wanted to do but have not been able to do, and help prepare them for the industries and the jobs of the future. So it, it's a really exciting program. And as you mentioned, we're taking a really creative approach to it. You know, we're allowing a wider set of stakeholders to come in and lead these and participate because we recognize in order to move a region in a direction towards the future and help them build on the unbelievable assets they already have, um, they need flexible models. So with this NSF engine program, we were really intentional about trying to build this flexible model and just building on one or two things that uh, others have said, you know, the morphing the tech transfer office, I think, is a, a necessary uh, move. You know, we need to be able to do more because you need to build kind of a diversified portfolio of projects that you're working on at an institution. Um, and I think another thing that uh, Marianne said earlier was, you know, tech transfer offices have increasingly done a better job of creating support for faculty. I think they've also created a better job, the most successful ones at least, a front door for industry, you know, so that these aren't viewed as zero-sum negotiations but rather, how do we have a long-standing relationship so we can work together on multiple deals? And it's you know easy to have that term sheet that will allow us to spin out a technology and allow that to grow. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there, but I realize I probably skipped the most important thing about the NSF <laughs> engines program, um, the thing that people will get the most excited about. 
uh, we are providing up to $160 million over a 10-year period uh, for regions across the country. So um, it's a lot of money. It's a magnitude larger than programs we've done in the past. And for regions that are a bit earlier in the development, uh, we also have up to a million dollars for type ones, which are more developmental grants to help prepare you to create an NSF engine. Well, super exciting. Talk about, though, the unique opportunities and experiences you're seeing in the Heartland as you're thinking about this particular program and how it could really benefit the Heartland. Because a lot of times we would tell you that, as you know, from all of your incredible work that you've done in your career, a lot of the money goes to the coast. It doesn't necessarily always come to the, the middle of the country. Yeah, so I mean, we explicitly say that we want to focus on regions that have not fully participated in technology boom of the past decades. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of places in the heartland that likely fit that mold. And obviously, there's a lot of unbelievable assets and academic institutions and um, industry partners and startups growing in the heartland. So uh, we welcome applications from across the country. And we hope to see really well thought out coalitions coming together and developing new models to drive innovation and entrepreneurship in their regions. I love that. Marianne, so as you were working on the report, because you were the lead author, were there any universities that made the list that surprised you? Well, you know, um, many of the universities are the well-known coastal private universities, but there are some notable exceptions or, you know, some surprises. And so our highest ranked um, university in terms of, and again, we're measuring formal tech transfer. So using licensing, licensing revenue, disclosures, startups, and then also informal, tech transfer. And so there we're looking at graduation of STEM students, both those with a bachelor's and a master's degree. We don't include um, doctoral recipients because we believe they participate in a national market. And then we had another indicator. We wanted to see how useful is academic research to industry. And so we looked at patent citations that um, patent citations on patents held by firms. And we looked at the citations to academic articles and then counted those where the authors were located, the institutions where those authors were located. And so really that is giving us a measure of how useful the science is to, to pat uh, corporate patenting, firm patenting. And uh, so, uh, Carnegie Mellon was first. Well, I know that's near and dear to your heart, right? That is my alma mater. <laughs> but, but this was very, very objective. I of course, I say that uh, because I know I would be super proud if, if my um, alma mater were ranked number one for sure. Right, and it is also um, Minoli's um, alma mater, yes. also, although we were decades apart in our time there. But the great thing about it is that the Carnegie Mellon example shows the sort of long-term temporal process of building on success. And also the engagement of the university in building an 
ecosystem um, in the Pittsburgh region. Carnegie Mellon also is a surprise because it doesn't have a medical school, but they have great collaborations with the University of Pittsburgh. And so again, sort of taking advantage of co-located assets to really do well. Um, I guess, you know, Ross and I um, have had much discussion about this because um, it is the university, it is a North Carolina State University um, that ends up coming in at seventh. And they are um, really have moved up very rapidly in the rankings, in large part due to Chancellor Randy Woodson. And they have become a real powerhouse, strong engineering programs, um, strong ag biotech. So that was a little bit of a surprise to me. And as um, I have been at the University of North Carolina, a little bit of institutional embarrassment maybe. Well, how far um, did they jump to number seven? Well, if you go back to this report that we did at, uh, in Mil at Milken in 2017, um, it's a, it's a jump from somewhere around um, the high 20s, I was I gonna believe. say, that's what I thought I was recollecting. Somewhere around the high 20s. That's and right. I, based, going back to what Marianne said, um, if you look at the, the Chancellor, Randy Woodson, he joined North Carolina State from Purdue, which was another top ranked uh, commercialization university. Uh, I think it was, it was 11th and tied for 11th in our categories. And Mitch Daniels is there now, and um, he's very committed to commercialization, but it tells you a little about the cultures of where you've worked at previously. So mm -hmm. if you've been among the leaders at a university that really is committed to technology transfer or seen as part of your mission, that gets embedded in you and it becomes just part of the accepted norm. And then when you're recruited to someplace else to lead another major research university, um, you kind of lead by example and begin to change the culture and mold it more in that direction. Right. And how important leadership is. And, and, that, and leadership is critical. If you, right. if you go through some of these changes that have occurred over time among universities that are moving up the rankings, you, you, will, you can almost look at the lineage of where they <laughs> came from, what their backgrounds were, typically from a STEM field, not in all cases, but in, in, in most cases. And the ones that tended to move up the most had leaders that came from kind of academic entrepreneurial leaders in the past. Right. And so that, that was something that they that embraced and are moving forward because it's institutionalized and in the Correct. way they do their business. Daniel, I, I want to come back I, to something. I'm sorry, that, I was just going to say, um, can I, can I just oh, make ahead, one please. comment just on the, the rankings? Yes. Um, I mean, one thing I think is not just who was on the rankings, but I think something that's interesting and noticeable is kind of the absence of HBCUs and MSIs um, mm -hmm. on, in the rankings or near the tops of the rankings. So, I mean, I think that's a place that regions and governments and others can really think about how to make intentional investments in those communities and building capacity. I know NSF right now is working on a study um, looking at HBCU tech transfer capacity and how we can expand that. And I know with our new program, the NSF Engines and our new directorate, uh, we intentionally say that you can use funds from engines to strengthen and build out your tech transfer office because we understand certain institutions, people working in tech transfer also have six other hats that they need to wear. So 
you know, anything we can do to continue to strengthen this so that we also see it a strengthening of our STEM and workforce and startups and the diversity of those, I think is really important. So, you know, as much as we're talking about all the work institutions and the uh, universities that have done a fantastic job, um, I think it's also just important to call out some of the institutions um, that really need additional capacity building and support. Mm -hmm, certainly. So I want to go back to something Marianne said, Daniel, and ask you to sort of comment on it from a broader perspective, the way this is designed. And that was that Carnegie doesn't have a medical school, but they yeah. are collaborating with a medical school. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are very open to multiple institution collaborations. Uh, I think it's really hard to go at it alone and try to do everything incredibly well. You know, in order to develop a region, uh, you need to take advantage of the full assets within that region. And that might be one institution has a great engineering school and the other has a fantastic business school or a medical school or whatever it might be. And then, you know, what are the core industries that are emerging there? What are the startups and what are they building? How does this all come together? So I, I talk a lot about kind of co-creation to catalyze breakthrough technologies. We want to see all these stakeholders around the table working in a really cohesive manner to create that commercialization and research spine for their regions. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So Marianne, you, you know, as a think and do tank at Heartland Forward, our, a heavy amount of our interest is really being able to help policymakers um, provide solutions that are only going to make their communities better and better and better. What can policymakers do to foster technology transfer and commercialization? Oh, really great question. Thank you. And so really, um, you know, I, I believe we're seeing increased um, federal interest in this topic right now. A general recognition, recognition that the locus of inventive activity is local and we need to invest in communities. Um, I think that we also, um, state governors, should recognize the importance of um, tech transfer to create new firms, new industries, new jobs, and to build out supply chains. And so um, this is a real opportunity. Uh, some, in some states, economic development activities have really shifted to um, attracting um, warehouses, branch plant locations. And that's unfortunate. There's just sort of no one kind of sticking up for entrepreneurs and really promoting their activity. I mean, I mentioned that this was an unfunded mandate and that could be addressed at the federal level, but funds to specifically state institutions could be augmented by um, state governments. Um, I want to say also that I think that we really need to, if we want faculty to have the time to think up creative ideas and to engage in commercialization and to start companies, we need to get them off what is currently a grant treadmill where faculty are just constantly writing grants and don't have the opportunity to really think about long-term projects and then to invest their energy in commercialization. So increasing funding for universities would go a long way and would have a direct effect 
on tech transfer capabilities. In addition to the obvious, just <laughs> you know, sort of investing in these capabilities. And I love the way that you phrase this, Daniel, which it's just, you know, looking at this as a portfolio of activities that the university is engaged in. And so we need to think of tech transfer as part of this economic development um, function that universities are engaged in. What would you add, Ross? I would just say that economic development officials, I think, have underappreciated just how important research universities that are dedicated to commercializing their research are in terms of the overall economic development of state and local economies. There, some are getting, you know, are new to the game, uh, but there's still way too much what I refer to as smokestack chasing taking place, using incentives to bring new manufacturing facilities, rather than what I would refer to as indigenous innovation, creating new companies out of academia, federal labs, um, because that's where job creation occurs. And if you don't have universities that are engaged in commercialization and tech transfer and supported locally and at the state level, you simply are going to be left behind. Right. Can I just okay, add so Daniel, uh, one point on that? Yes, of course. So I think about kind of multiple stages in the innovation ecosystem development. You have kind of the early stage research, then you have the commercialization activity coming out of the institution. And then next you have kind of company formation and startups forming. And then after that, you have the company growth within the region. I think there's actually a role for economic development, professionals, for state governments, local governments to play in every step of that way, because you have drop off and you lose people at each and every step. So even when you have these fantastic companies that are starting in your region and coming out of your academic institutions or other institutions, you also have this real challenge where a lot of them leave after they raise their first round of institutional capital or once they reach a certain level of scale because there isn't the talent and the workforce in place to fill those senior roles and there's junior roles or perhaps there's other incentives or challenges. So really to get to this point of kind of escape velocity as a region, you need to be able to take advantage of the diaspora. You know, when there's these liquidity events where these startups are you know, reaching IPOs or sales so that you will have the early employees starting their own companies and starting to angel invest. Like that's really when you reach this point of escape velocity. So thinking about this kind of across the entire continuum, I think is really important for all the stakeholders at the table. I love that. Thank you. Um, so Daniel, talk for just a second about the timeline because there are going to be people who are listening to this and I can remember you telling me in a conversation, you were talking about like June, and I was thinking, oh, June 2023. <laughs> you all are moving swiftly, which I think is compelling. I love it that you all, can you talk about the timeline for where you see this, you know, launching as you are now already on your road, you know, shows, and then where you begin to see where they're going to be awarded? Yeah, absolutely. So our first deadline is June 30th. That is for concept outlines. Um, for a type one, which is the earlier stage award, um, it is a two-page document. For the type twos, it's a five-page document since it's up to a $160 million award. Um, these do not need to be fully baked cakes. At this point, you'll have continued opportunities to build your coalition, iterate between then and the application deadline on September 29th. Um, but we really wanna see coalitions start to come together. That's why we're putting together these roadshows that you'll be hearing about in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then something that's a bit unique and I think interesting is we're going to publish every single concept outline that is submitted. We're going to talk about the region. We're going to talk about the topic area. 
And the goal of that is so that people can see the landscape across the country and say, oh, that's a really interesting project that's going on one community over. Can I team up with them and work together because I'm in this space? Or, oh, there's an opportunity to work on this or that. Rather than waiting until after the deadline to find out what other people are working on, we want to share that information openly and publicly early in the process to really encourage teaming and collaboration. So the key deadlines are June 30th, that's hurdle number one, um, and September 29th is when we are going to accept the type one applications, and then the type two applications will be accepted um, after in you know early 2023 is our goal right now. Awesome. Thank you. Mary Ann and Ross, what is next after this particular report? Because I know that um, there's probably some interest by universities, particularly how they report their numbers that might be looking and thinking, where are we in this ranking? And we don't see ourselves in this ranking and why not? Um, and I know that you all have a solution to that. Okay, you know, we are limited to those universities that reported to Autumn. And so that really was the spine of our report. Uh, you know, as uh, Daniel mentioned, very few of the HBCUs report. And so um, we, if, a, if a university did not report, we simply did not have data to use in our analysis. The next interesting thing is that universities are organized differently. So some universities um, report as systems. And that is like the University of California system or the University of Texas system. And really it's unfair to compare systems to individual institutions. And so um, Madeline Gates, our wonderful research assistant painstakingly collected data um, for the individual constituent institutions that were part of systems so we could rank them separately. And for others, we were not able to find that data, so we had to leave them off. Um, and so in the report, um, let me mention, I'm just very happy with the way this report turned out. <laughs> and, um, you know, we do the sort of top 25, but then we slice and dice the data in different ways. So we look at institutions that don't have medical schools. And then we also, in trying to account for the research capacity at a place, we look at performance within different um, quartiles. And so just given the resources you have available, how, how well is an institution um, performing relative to its peers? And so currently we're working on a report that is going to look at the um, assets that exist within individual states, because again, targeting governors as important actors in this policy process. Right. And then we are going to um, also provide the systems ranking and then places like North Carolina, we have all the individual institutions reporting separately. But if you look at the uh, North Carolina system, what you see is that it's performing much better than you than I expected. And so this report is currently under preparation and Ross will be coming out soon. <laughs> and I've often, or well, at least once, reference that if it doesn't come out soon, I might have to write it myself, oh. <laughs> which I would actually enjoy doing because I wouldn't spend so much time on fundraising activities. Okay, final words in this podcast with the three of y'all. Ross, you're the CEO of Heartland Forward. What would be your 
final thoughts for our listeners when it comes to research to renewal and this whole idea of innovation and entrepreneurship? It is central to the long-term economic performance of the country. And we need to recognize it, whether you're an economic developer, a university president, the dean uh, of, a, of a school at a university, uh, to a venture capitalist, uh, if we're going to be successful as a nation, we have to invest in building the infrastructure, the ecosystems around this type of knowledge-based economic development. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Mary Ann. Thank you, Ross. We appreciate the time and the attention. Good luck, Daniel, as you are out there on all those road shows <laughs> and you are looking at all those ideas. I'm so curious about all of the amazing things that you're going to read and learn about what people have been yearning and hungry to do that they haven't had the capacity to do just because they haven't had the dollars. So it'll be super exciting. And Marianne and Ross, good luck on the second um, rendition or the second uh, phase of this report, because I know there are going to be a lot of institutions looking forward to seeing where they are in those rankings. So thank you. Awesome. Awesome. I loved this conversation. And I don't need to tell you because you listened to it and could hear the passion that Ross and Marianne and Daniel have for their work, especially in the space of innovation and entrepreneurship. The Meet Us in the Middle podcast is on Spotify and iTunes, and this episode was hosted by me, Blake Woolsey, the Chief Communications and Development Officer at Heartland Forward. We are excited you joined us to Meet Us in the Middle. <laughs>